From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. If instead Putin doubles down, then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance. Sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster. We could have a massive miscalculation and we will then be in a full-scale war across the globe. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. So on today's programme, we'll be speaking to Nigel Mills, Conservative MP for Amber Valley, and also to our Bloomberg opinion columnist, Therese Raphael, about whether Vladimir Putin could ever be held accountable for his actions in Ukraine. Well, let's start with Ukraine as the US, EU and G7 coordinate a fresh round of sanctions on Russia. Yesterday, Ukraine's president criticised the United Nations, claiming it's being discredited by Russia and isn't functioning as it should. Vladimir Zelensky says the Kremlin is abusing its veto powers at the Security Council to block efforts towards peace. Either remove Russia as the aggressor and a source of the war so it cannot block decisions regarding its own aggression, its own war, and then do everything that we can do to establish peace. And in a video message partly in Russian, Boris Johnson urges Russians to find and share the facts for themselves about what's going on in Ukraine. And you may also have had it marked in your calendar today. It's the new tax year. This one is the year of the national insurance increase. The Prime Minister is defending the controversial decision to hike national insurance for millions of workers and businesses, arguing that the rise is necessary, fair and responsible. From today, contributions will increase by one and a quarter percentage points. The government says that it will help to raise £39 billion over the next three years to help to tackle the NHS backlog and fund social care over the long term. Well, let's discuss today's political issues with our guest, Nigel Mills, Conservative MP for Amber Valley. Nigel sits on the Commons Business Committee, the Working Pensions Committee and the International Development Committees. Nigel, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. So April is the month of a massive hike in energy bills, higher council tax, petrol, diesel, food prices, water bills. Was it really a good idea to add a tax rise to all of that? Probably not. I think at the time this was announced last autumn, it, it did make sense to, you know, we've got a huge NHS backlog with millions of people waiting treatment. We've got plans to put in place extra capacity that had to be paid for. We just spent £400 billion getting through the through the pandemic, paying, you know, 10 million people's wages for part of that time. But it kind of made sense to say, actually, look, employers and individuals we've got to start paying the bills we need to catch the nhs up we need more tax to do it uh but i think just the way the cost of living shot up that's become a pretty awful awful timing mm. to sort of like be putting taxes up at probably the, the worst of the spike uh i think i would have preferred to delay the tax rise until the autumn at the earliest or something but you know it 
some point we do have to start paying the bills we've racked up for the last two years and have chosen to start doing some of that now. So perhaps it would have been better to leave it to autumn. Given that we haven't left it to the autumn, do you think the Chancellor's going to have to jump in and uh, and, and do something else on the cost of living before before we get to that budget in the autumn? Yeah, I think you'll certainly need to do something before we get to next winter. I mean, we, I mean we've just put state pension and after-work benefits up by 3%, which is you know less than half of inflation as it's currently running. I think the idea that people on fixed incomes with no easy way of increasing the amount they take home can get through next winter on only 3% more money than they have this winter when we know inflation will have been running at well over 7%. I think it's just impossible. So I think you'll have to do something for you know, certain groups of people. He could just choose to do, you know, those struggling the most. He could choose to repeat what he's done this month with the kind of running the council tax system in reverse, giving every household 150 quid. I think he'll need to do some something to help people out as what will be a really difficult position for far too many people next winter. I mean, I understand that obviously, you know, global events are moving so quickly, perhaps one could blame that in part. But also there's there's a problem surely for the Conservative government when it comes to business. I mean, the British Chambers of Commerce and a lot of business groups before the uh, mini budget um, a few weeks ago were saying that Sunak had to do more, that we are in the middle, as the BCC puts it, of a cost of doing business crisis. And they were really pretty, I'll say, annoyed that the government didn't do more. I mean, this is a Conservative government. Businesses should be at the core, surely, of policy. So, you know, they're also being crushed by the tax rise, by fuel, by raw materials, by, you know, pay going up so much. Sunak has to do more for for the job generators. Yeah, I think this becomes quite a challenge, doesn't it, as to how much money the government wants to spend and then where do you get that money from? You just go, maybe you'd have to borrow it and we've kind of racked up pretty huge amounts of debt since the financial crisis. I mean, we're now well over over two trillion, basically 100% of GDP. I'm not sure how many businesses are getting very happy if they've borrowed more than 100% of their turnover. So you're almost asking different people to pay taxes so you can give them money back to different people. It's, it's quite hard to fix all these problems. I think the actual fact the government's efforts during the pandemic and then and the cost of crisis have actually done things we've never tried mm. to do before in terms of giving money out. Uh, that's not normally what's done. I, I think I would agree we have to be quite careful that you're not yeah. overloading too many burdens of business. I mean, there's certainly some sectors where the, you know, if energy bills are going to double for businesses, but, but you know, if we're not careful, we'll drive some sectors mm. completely out of being competitive. I think we, we have to find a way of supporting those most energy-intensive ones, certainly. But, and we're kind of hope, hoping that the plan we'll see, I think it's due for tomorrow on energy security, will say something about that. Yeah, the, the thing is the GDP, um, the, the, the debt-to-GDP ratio, though, for the UK, for example, I mean, it's below France. Yes, we're above Germany, but Germany very strong on that point. I mean, if if you look comparatively, the UK UK borrowing isn't out of whack with other G7 countries. No, I mean, they're probably all at record high levels, or certainly record high peacetime levels. Uh, my point was, if you, if you want government to support business through wages going up, energy bills going up, fuel bills going up, and everything else going up, that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, you know, who's going to pay for that? Mm. Uh, there's no obvious person who could pay more tax to do that at the moment, so you'd be having to borrow a whole load more, which will have to then start recovering in the future. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a that the solution to everybody who's 
suffering in this crisis if the government can try and ease them through it. We need to ease people through the, you know, the, who are worst affected, be that individuals or, or businesses, but a limit to what government can do, I think. It's uh, traditional that uh, voters uh, tend to punish the ruling party when the cost of living is, is soaring. It is a month now until uh, voters in much of the country, including in uh, Amber Valley, I believe, uh, yeah. uh, go to the polls. Conservatives uh, control your local council, don't they? What are you expecting uh, uh, on May the 5th? Yeah, I mean, I think this will be a much more difficult year than we had last year when we were winning seats we'd never won before. I think you're right, people will you know, be concerned at the uh, impact on their finances. And I you know, I think we're going to have a pretty strong case that some of this is a, you know, a impact of the pandemic and the world getting back to normal. And, you know, there's not much we could do to, to absorb some of that. Uh, and the you know, gave out hugely generous support to get us through the through the pandemic. As I say, the 150 quid a household reverse of council tax, which nearly every one of the households in my constituency will will get, has never been tried before in, in previous inflation spikes. So I hope people can see the government have tried to do the best we can in a very difficult financial and general situation. And then mm. most people will also realise that actually some of this pain now is the sanctions on on Russia, and we even see some more of those today, and then people will accept that those are a necessary thing to do, given the awful events in in Ukraine, and we'll give the government some backing for doing those, accepting that you know, they will hurt everybody. Let's, I mean, let's hope we can find a resolution to that, and they don't have to last a huge long time, but there's no obvious end in sight as far as I can see. Do you think the voters will be as accepting? You mentioned the energy strategy report that's due out any day now. Um, do you think that voters will accept if the government comes out with plans to drill more oil um, and gas in the North Sea, that it's a kind of interim measure? Um, the IPCC have been sort of quite critical of that idea. Um, can can we really have both go to net zero in the UK, but also drill more? Um, I think we're going to have to, uh, because I don't think anybody thinks we're going to get to 2050 without using a lot of gas and oil in the meantime. Uh, I think most people would, would accept that actually getting that gas and oil from well-regulated domestic fields where you get the jobs, you get the tax revenue, you're not having to cart it around the world and give money to dodgy regimes all over the place is actually the, the better of the options. Um, you know, I, I don't think it should increase the amount of the gas or oil that we were planning to use compared to where we were three or six months ago, but I can't see any particular downside in getting it from our own sources rather than having to import it from Mr Putin. So more of our own gas rather than uh, imported uh, gas and oil. And what about uh, onshore wind and nuclear, two things which uh, cause a bit of debate in the Conservative Party? Yeah, I think nuclear we need to find a way of pushing on more quickly. I mean, we've got one station that was approved during the coalition years being constructed. Uh, I think the long-term energy mix of the country is going to need a large amount of nuclear if we're going to hit if we're going to hit net zero and we're not using any any gas at all. So I think pressing on with that, trying to find a way of making it cheaper and quicker to do. I think the small modular reactors could be a, a powerful way of doing that. Obviously, they're uh, being done by Rolls-Royce, one of the largest local employers in my area, so I naturally was supportive of pressing on with those. I think onshore wind in the in the right place, there's a lot of it already. It certainly has a, has a key role to play. We need to find a way of making sure it's in the right place and keep people happy with it if it's in their locality. And I think the ideas that are being talked about, about how you give you know, those affected some kind of 
reward, perhaps through lower energy bills, if they you know if they are affected by how we're producing the power, maybe a way of smoothing some of this through. Because otherwise, you know, I've experienced this with solar farms, gasification plants, wind turbines. You know, everything that anybody tries to do has huge local opposition. And, yes. Know, at times, absolutely rightly, but we do need to get the power from some places in the country at some point. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Bloomberg's Leanne Gerens joins us for that. Now, we're seeing surging COVID cases in England and also surging hospitalisations. What does the data tell us, Leanne? Yes, indeed, Caroline. So infections here in England last month reached their highest since the pandemic began. So the very start when we can remember all those lockdowns coming into place. And the increase has really been driven by this more transmissible Omicron subvariant. Now that's called BA2. And also the waning immunity among older adults. Because remember, they did this in age groups and in phases. So a lot of people did get their booster vaccines in the older age group well before the younger ones did and we didn't really know how long the immunity was going to last but clearly it is starting to decrease now and this is all due to the latest data from the react one study and it was led by imperial college london and paul elliott from the college says although we're not really seeing the significant rise in hospital admissions like we did in the first wave we should really be preparing for those numbers to increase as more mm. and more people people become infected. And also what I found really interesting is we're now going to be getting rid of a lot of testing in the UK as we open up and we just learn to live alongside COVID as the government has been pushing for. And researchers are concerned that it will become really difficult to detect emerging variants as the government does scale back the testing, which was costing us a fortune. Now, this is an interesting story. I remember when I went to New York and I first saw uh, calories listed uh, alongside meals in restaurants. Now it's coming to uh, England. It's coming home, Ewan. Yes, <laughs> it's coming home. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The US states were the first to start doing this. So if you want to go out and have a meal tonight or at lunchtime after your shift, you're going to see calories on that menu. Now, restaurants, cafes and takeaways with more than 250 staff. So they have to be quite sizable, to be honest. They must print how many calories are in meals on their menus, websites and also on the delivery platform. Now, the new rule is all part of the government drive to really tackle obesity by helping people make healthier choices. So what they're hoping is I know when I go into a coffee shop and I see my favourite latte on the board is really high in calories and I often choose something else. So they're hoping that's what we do. They're hoping that we're going to make more sensible choices. But don't be mistaken, this is definitely coming under some scrutiny. Eating disorder charities say it could contribute to harmful thoughts and behaviours as people do become really anxious around calories and losing weight and keeping themselves on track. But we must also remember that almost two thirds, so that's a whopping 63% of adults in England are over 
overweight or obese. And one in three children leaves primary school overweight too. So we are seeing big numbers here in the country, especially when it comes to increasing obesity levels. Yeah, the obesity levels in the UK are really scary, uh, even though the hospitality trade are pretty um, annoyed and uh, largely against this idea of putting a calorie count. And they say that it'll kind of kill creativity in restauranting. For example, one of the complaints that I read, uh, for example, from UK Hospitality. Leanne, thank you so much for being with us. Leanne Gerrans there bringing us some news uh, in the political world today. Yeah, I'm not a big calorie watcher, but it is quite useful to know just just how many calories are in the meal you're about to eat. It'd be interesting to see if it does change consumption patterns. Well, let's get back to the situation in Ukraine. We're joined by our, our regular friend, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Therese Raphael. Now, Therese, a fresh round of sanctions from the US and the EU and the G7. What's left for the West to do? It feels like we've had so many rounds of these sanctions. We, we must be. We must have had all the kind of low, low-hanging fruit by now. Yeah, I think that's exactly the sort of problem facing the West now. Is that with each turn of the screw, we're getting perhaps you know less impact in terms of the. Uh, the, you know, the, the harm or the the pain that is caused to Russia, and yet, it, as we're seeing, the public pressure to do something, particularly after the uh, you know really gruesome and horrific war crimes evidence that we saw coming out of Bucha and elsewhere, is only increasing. So you know you have the Biden administration, uh, the EU, looking for new ways to put pressure on Putin, and yet. Still, the carve-outs for uh, hydrocarbon uh, purchases, which they you know, are just simply too dependent on to cut off Russia completely, and so that doesn't really leave a lot left. I mean, we're hearing you know talk of sanctioning Putin's daughters. Um, you know, we're kind of really reaching to the bottom of the bag unless we include those really big high value uh, purchases from Russia, oil, gas, uh, Mm. coal we're now seeing being brought into the mix. Um, And so then, you know, the question becomes, as we enter this phase of the war where Russia has learned something presumably from the mistakes of its initial month long uh, invasion where it was repelled uh, in in around uh, Kiev and uh, in other parts of the country, it is now says saying uh, that it will be reconcentrating its forces and its efforts on the east and the south and the Donbass. Um, so we don't expect that Putin is really pulling back much further than that. Uh, and Ukraine is, of course, demanding more weapons. It's in deep need of humanitarian aid. Um, and so I think we may be reaching the natural limit of what sanctions can do unless, again, we're willing to cross into those areas uh, that, you know, that include the oil and gas purchases and yes. uh, that Europe doesn't seem to be willing to do yet. Well, I suppose Russia thought that it would be able to manage a swift kind of shock and awe campaign over these five weeks. It failed. I mean, maybe the West also guilty of thinking that, you know, the economic sanctions could be a kind of retaliatory shock and awe. And, and perhaps they are f- failing a little bit in that sense, certainly to bring any kind of ceasefire about. But also, um, I mean, just as as the sanctions discussions are ongoing. You know, Vladimir Zelensky in front of that UN Security Council going into graphic details about what has happened in uh, Bucha and the US president talking about war crimes. Is Vladimir Putin really going to face some kind of tribunal, some kind of war crimes trial? Yeah, this is one of Zelensky's big asks. I think it, it, it has 
uh, broad support. It's um, also, you know, because this war has been is being documented in such granular detail with the photographs, the videos, uh, organizations like Bellingcott um, putting, you know, evidence uh, onto maps. There is now mounting evidence of war crimes and, you know, and a real will to build those cases up. But mm. that is the key question is how do you prosecute uh, the chain up the chain of command, not just the uh, Russian soldiers on the ground, many of whom, you know, uh, you know, were thrown out there with very little training. Uh, war crimes cases take a very long time. They have to be built meticulously. We saw that in the former Yugoslavia and in uh, Rwanda, where special tribunals were authorized by the UN Security Council to do that. Now, we know the ICC, the International Criminal Court in The Hague, uh, can prosecute war crimes, even though Russia is not a member because uh, Ukraine has accepted the court's jurisdiction for incidents on its territory. It cannot, however, prosecute uh, the crime of aggression, which is the easiest uh, way to get at Vladimir Putin himself, since he's you know clearly the person in charge. Um, so many have argued that there needs to be a separate tribunal uh, simply for the crime of aggression. That is controversial among you know uh, different uh, countries and, and the international legal community. Some feel it would take away from the ICC's efforts. Um, but uh, you know I think there, there's no question that there, there needs to be a parallel process of continuing to put pressure on the war crimes front. At the same time, this this means that Putin does not have an off-ramp because, uh, you know, once those processes are underway, as they are now, uh, you can't simply switch them off uh, because of some deal around the negotiating table. So, you know, th- that that the you know, ship is, is, is well on its way, even if it takes a very long time to bring, mm-hmm. you know, Putin or his command, uh, his commander's you know, before court. Yeah, you mentioned uh, evidence. Of course, these days it does seem there, there's there's far more evidence being gathered with drones and social media footage. Everybody has a, a, a phone, a, a camera, effectively in the in their pockets. But there are still lots of logistical problems. You mentioned about you know cooperation from from Putin and and Russia itself. Yeah, I think this is going to take a very this a very long time, and and we just need to be prepared for that. It's a painstaking process to uh, not just gather that evidence, but to connect the dots between crimes on the ground to the, you know, the photographs seem, um, you know, extremely clear, but they need to be connected to certain units and soldiers command right up the command center. Um, And then, of course, you know, ultimately to the Kremlin. And that is going to take a very long time when we, you know, it was We've often seen war crimes prosecuted over decades. So, um, but it's a, it's a, I think a side of this that is hugely important for determining what our world looks like after uh, this crisis, after this war, whenever it is resolved. Because you know, if you see these crimes go unpunished, um, then you know we we are looking at a very different uh, geopolitical landscape. You know, when we have to you know consider the next uh, aggression so the war crimes element i think as zelensky rightly says is part of it's partly about defending the whole post-war system of international humanitarian law um, that institutions like the un were set up to defend and he, you know he challenged the security council you know what security are you guaranteeing what are you for if you cannot at least go after this and you know to that they have no really good answer right now Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.